Welcome to season one of Reclaiming Jesus Now. 10 conversations with Jim Wallace, exploring the themes of his new book, Christ in Crisis. We're your host, I'm William Matthews. And I'm Allison Trowbridge. Today, we'll discuss chapter nine. The Discipleship Question. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. The crux of what he's saying is this. Do you see me in them? Some have called it a final exam for anyone so bold as to call themselves a disciple. So, how are we measuring up? Jim, I'd love for you to to lead into this with... um, you know, you really brought Matthew 25 as the, as the core text around this question of discipleship. And and I'm curious, one, as to why you chose that text, and, and two, why you feel like this question of the, of, two, why you feel like this question of discipleship is the final resounding question that following Jesus leads us to. Well, as we have been having this conversation together about how Christians have become disconnected from Jesus and how we need to reconnect at the point of loving our neighbor, at the point of speaking the truth, at the point of seeing all human beings as bearers of the image of God, of being a servant leader, of not being so afraid of resolving conflicts as peacemakers, we finally get to this. Uh, This is, I think, the final test of discipleship. It was my conversion text. Uh, As I've shared here in, in the book, having been kicked out of my church as a teenage kid over the issues of race and war, um, I found my home in the student movements of my time. And in those movements, I decided that I wanted to live my life trying to change this world, that vocation of being an activist. That was what I wanted to do. But I didn't feel I had an adequate foundation for that. I knew how I wanted to live, but I didn't know how I would undergird that, what would be the basis. Um, the foundation. So, like a lot of my friends, I was reading a lot of people, but I wasn't really finally satisfied with Karl Marx, Ho Chi Minh, and Che Guevara. So, having been kicked out of the church and left my own church, I don't think I ever got quite shed of Jesus. So, I went back there. I went back to the New Testament after we'd shut down our university at Michigan State, intense days of organizing, and I went back to the New Testament. I found the Sermon on the Mount, which we discussed in our last our last uh, conversation, how this was, as you call it, Allison, the upside-down kingdom, turning everything upside down. Uh, this, this turns the world around. This is what Jesus said we're supposed to do as his disciples. And I had never heard a sermon on that Sermon on the Mount before. Mm. But then I got to this text, this Matthew 25 text, and I had never seen or heard anything like this in my life. It was the most radical thing I'd ever read, more than Ho Chi Minh, Che Guevara, and Karl Marx. This is the It Was Me text. Mm. I was hungry and you fed me or not. I was thirsty, you gave me a cup of water or not. I was a stranger. That word means immigrant, refugee. Mm. That's literally what it means. Mm. You welcomed me or you didn't. I was naked, stripped of everything I had, and you began to restore that back to me, or you didn't. I was sick, and you didn't visit me, or you did, or you cared about my health care, or you didn't. I was a prisoner. You didn't come to see me or ask, was the system that put me in prison a just system? It was me. 
And they all said, these are all people, the sheep and the goats, as it's called in text. They all thought they were Jesus' followers. That's important to recognize. They all thought they belonged to him. And he said, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, naked, sick, a stranger in prison? We didn't know it was you. Had we known it was you, we would have at least formed maybe a social action committee. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. And here's what he says. What you didn't understand is it was me. How you treat those who are the least of these, meaning the marginal, the put aside, the the shut out, the ignored, the neglected, that's how you treat me. So I'll know how much you love me by how you treat them. That's the final test here. This was his last teaching before he went into Jerusalem to be crucified and raised from the dead. This was his final teaching. This is the measure. It was his I've seen the mountaintop. (laughs) This is how we measure our lives as disciples. If you want to be part of me. And Jesus is not very judgmental, but he was here in Mm. this text. Well, it seems to me that Jesus uses exclusionary language often to show people that they're not being inclusive. Um, oh, that's good. Yeah, it, it is a, we, we read the exclusionary words of Jesus as unto themselves, but not in connection to the very thing he's critiquing. Yeah. Which is, hey, you're being like your father, the devil, when you, you know. Yeah when you lie and when you like accuse your brother and why? Because it's about communion and oneness and inclusion mm. with your brother. So he almost uses exclusionary language. I find um, even this idea in Matthew 25 of the sheeps and the goats and this, the separating of, of them as a way to provoke people into the, the kind of communion and oneness and the inclusion that he believes is for their wholeness and their, and their healing. Um, I see that, you quoted Lisa Sharon Harper. <clears throat> I see you quoted Lisa Sharon Harper, author of Very Good Gospel. Um, and you connected to Matthew 25 because she connects Matthew 25 and Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, to Black Lives Matter. And uh, you write here in the book, Solidarity for Those Regarded as Unacceptable Challenges Society's Respectability Politics. And uh, I'll quote, Lisa, to support Black Lives Matter means to support the reality that all black life matters, including those who would be seen by the white power structure as the least respectable in society. The principle is very much in line with the principle of biblical shalom, the belief that until all of us have peace, then none of us have peace. What made you decide to... um, I don't think I've ever heard anybody connect Matthew 25 to Black Lives Matter. What what mm. made you want to connect this or bring Lisa's Sharon Harper's words into your understanding or unfolding her understanding of Matthew 25 into your understanding of Matthew 25? Well, this text changed my life, uh, the direction of my life. As I said, I think before in this conversation uh, that we're having together, um, I have my worldview, my view of the world has always been changed, continually changed, by being where I wasn't supposed to be with people I was never supposed to meet or know, which means that's where you learn how the world really is. From God's point of view, it's not looked at from the top down. It's looked at from the bottom up. So when Ferguson happened, I was in South Africa at the time, and I was, I was working with, alongside, listening to, learning from, and strategizing with a whole new generation of young black leaders in South Africa, way beyond apartheid now, a whole new generation rising up. And then I came home, and Ferguson hit South Africa powerfully. And I came home, and I went to Ferguson, and I met those leaders And um, their view, their experience, what, you know, if if black lives don't matter, 
none of our lives matter. Or let's put it this way, until black lives matter. Mm. Until black lives matter, then our lives mm-hmm. don't matter. And I met these young activists. Some had come out of the churches and some had not. Um, they were all, um, they would say, unchurched by church. The, their lives in streets were unchurched by churches. And I was told by a number of leaders, church leaders, black church leaders, these activists, these new activists, didn't come up through our churches. They're not, they're not, we, they didn't, and, and, uh, uh, Literally told, sometimes, um, to go home. Hmm. So, or reading Martin Luther King Jr. to them out for the first time in the street, some of those pastors. So, um, but they were getting it. They were getting what Jesus is saying here. The reality of the world is best seen always from those whom he's talking about here, who are on the margins, on the edges. They see the world as Jesus did. And so all the Christians who raised me and talked about Jesus all the time were pushing away the very people Jesus is talking about here. And they didn't know they were pushing away Christ himself. Mm. They were pushing away Jesus Christ himself. So they really didn't know Jesus, even though they talked about his name all the time. I had never seen anything that radical before. And so I decided not to be a Christian yet, but to be a follower of Jesus. And my tutors in the gospel have been people uh, like that. My tutors, I mentioned one one of my most important elders in the early Sojourners neighborhood where we moved into Washington, D.C. Her name was Mary Glover, and she's one of the people you were talking about the other day. She's, she was a cook in a daycare center, made no money at all. Uh, but she walked the streets as an elder, and she held that place together. And so after a while, there were some such, such basic things like people who didn't have enough food to get through the week, 20 blocks from the White House. That's wow. all, 20 wow. blocks from the White House. Wow. So we, together with our neighbors, opened up this, uh, it was a simple food line, just a bag of groceries. Saturday morning, you wait in line, mm-hmm. and you uh, get a bag of groceries. And everybody who was volunteering needed the groceries, too. We all did. Mm-hmm. But, but we always would put them all together. And then we'd say a prayer. And it was worth being there on Saturday morning just to hear Mary Glover pray. Because she always said the prayer. And she was a Pentecostal woman who talked like, spoke like she knew who we, she spoke like she knew who was, she's a Pentecostal woman who spoke like she knew who she was talking to. Mm. She and her Lord have been having a conversation for a long time. (laughs) And it was worth even coming home from a trip just to get there Mm. to hear her pray. She said, Lord, thank you for waking me up this morning. Hmm. Thank you that my that the walls of my room were not the walls of my grave, <laughs> and my bed was not my cooling board. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Then she said these words, Lord, the people are now waiting outside, 200 people outside waiting in line, about to come in just to get a bag of groceries. Lord, we know that you'll be coming through this line today. Hmm. So, Lord, help us to treat you well. She looked mm-hmm. at the world the way Jesus did, and she became a tutor for me to see the world mm-hmm. the way Jesus did. That was her instinct. Lord, we know that it'll be you coming through that line, so please, Lord, help us to wow. treat you well. Mm. Mm. I think it's Richard Rohr that talks about Christ as kind of this the stand-in for, for everything and all things, mm. and how he's the universal figure by which we see everything. And so mm. when he's making that connection in Matthew 25, like, do unto least as you would have them do unto me, you are, that is Christ. It is not yeah. simply a a metaphor almost. It's yeah. like, I am, he's transfigured. He is a part of all things. And he seems to be trying to communicate to us in his last uh, sermon yeah, I'm in everything, and actually, you're going to find me in, in the very least of these. So do it as unto me. 
The thing that struck me so much about this passage and and had me reading it in a way that I never had before was seeing Matthew 25 as a filter through which we can assess so many of the so many current events and present problems and crises happening around us and a, a great example in the book here is the one of global warming mm-hmm. and climate change and looking at that through a Matthew 25 lens we see how the people who Jesus named as the least of these are already being affected by climate change and are the ones who will be most devastated by it in the future. You say, for the hungry, it means the expectation of massive food shortages and starvation. The thirsty, more terrible droughts, as we are already seeing. The naked, stripping millions of all their resources. The stranger, the clear result of dislocating millions more as migrants, the sick, the spreading of more disease, the prisoner, more destabilization, chaos, poverty, desperation, and therefore crime. That came when I was asked to speak at, you know, an environmental conference. Their perspective was, tell us how to move climate change up the list Mm. of our concerns. A very typical, very affluent, very white, let me just say it, kind of perspective on the environmental movement. I just said, so I went back to my text. This is my defining, changing, always changing me text. Mm. And I and I looked at that and I thought, this isn't something that is little higher than poverty, little lower than criminal justice reform. This What's happening with our climate is impacting every one of those people Jesus called the least of these. Mm. This isn't about one of our issues. It's about all of the people that Jesus says we need to pay most attention to. And therefore, it just opened up. I did a, a Matthew 25 hermeneutic on climate change, like a Matthew 25 hermeneutic on Black Lives Matter. You do a hermeneutic from this text, and you understand this isn't just another issue coming from some other place and some other people. This is what Jesus meant when he said, as you've done to the least of these you have done to me. And from Black Lives Matter to climate change to to the dreamers who every day are being targeted, This this is a test of our discipleship, not what sits one, two, three, four, five on our list. This is a test of whether we see Jesus or not. Yeah. I I have to confess and admit that even though I've been, I was a Christian my whole life, and I've been a Christian my whole life, I have not always understood how significant and how reorienting these passages of Scripture are. Matthew 5 even all the way to Matthew 25. Um, I saw them as anecdotal. I saw them simply as kind of sorrowful words from a man about to die. <laughs> but, you know, I went through a bit of a spiritual deconstruction. And in my spiritual deconstruction, I really started rethinking a lot of my, not just theology, but a lot of my theological lenses, meaning the assumptions I was making about the world and about the text. Mm-hmm. And one of the the authors who probably did this for me the most uh, was a man by the name of Rene Girard, who was a French uh, anthropologist and a philosopher and a literary critic. And Rene Girard really helped me change my sociology. Um, I saw the root of human culture as coming from a vastly different place than as I previously understood it. And and those of you that don't know Rene Girard, he was probably one of the most um, brilliant anthropologists and social critics. He came up with this thing called mimetic theory, where he basically argued that um, desire itself is mimetic, that we mimic each other's desire, and therefore it creates jealousy, envy, rivalry, and comparison. Mm. But that always leads to what Rene would call the scapegoat mechanism. And actually, Rene is probably the reason that word is popularized, at least in academic circles. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, was his understanding of desire, the root of desire. And you might think, well, okay, what does that have to do with scripture, he actually began to use the biblical text as an unmasking or an unveiling 
of the scapegoat mechanism. And one of the things he he said was that scripture as a literary understanding unmasks to us that the scapegoat or the victim is innocent. And he kind of argued most liter- literary works, uh, Greek mythology, Roman mythology, was always masking the fact that we were creating scapegoats, killing them, and they're often victims. And then in the retelling of the story, we would deify them and make mm. them these gods. And so he argues kind of mythology is, is are these, de- you know, these are they're deified victims. Um, but anyway, as... I started rethinking the notion of scapegoating and how basic and to desire it is and human desire and realizing so much of our theology is rooted in an us versus them versus a new reality that Jesus seems to be inaugurating through Matthew 5 through 25, which is that the least of these that Jesus calls us to protect are often the most scapegoated. Mm. And that's why he's calling us to protect them because they're him and they're us and it's this communion oneness thing we see in John 17, right? That I and the Father are one and so that you would be one in us. And this, this, this intimacy of the divine with, hum- with humankind. And so when we other and when we scapegoat, we are dehumanizing. We are destroying the, Im- the image question. We are yes, yeah. like everything that we've been talking about to me yeah. kind of lends itself towards this notion that Jesus is calling us out of the scapegoat thing. Stop scapegoating each other. Stop projecting your sin and your blame onto each other. Stop accusing each other. Mm. You become the Satan when you enter into accusation and blame. And actually, when we're called to enter into radical love and forgiveness and mercy and hospitality. Mm. And so for me, that like completely reshaped and reformed my Christian theology. It gave me a new sociology, a better sociology, by which I actually understood the text uh, and I understood a lot of the words of Jesus that didn't quite make sense to me. And and I, I was telling them earlier, it, it almost feels like red pill, blue pill matrix thing. <laughs> Once you see the safe scapegoat mechanism, you can't unsee it at uh-huh. all. <laughs> and you yeah. see it everywhere. And it felt like everything fell apart for me for yeah. a minute because it was like, oh, wow, I've been doing this. We've been doing this. Wow. But Jesus is the is the antidote to the human propensity to scapegoat because he was like, let me be, I'll be the final scapegoat. Scapegoat Mm -hmm. me so you don't have to do it for anyone else. You don't have to put them on the cross, put Mm -hmm. me on the cross. And he willingly volunteered his life as a means of like, let me represent the final sacrifice, the lamb slain, the final, like I will be the final scapegoat so you no longer have to scapegoat your brother. So that's what I talk about in this chapter is applying Matthew 25. So let's apply what Rene Girard's saying about scapegoats to this text and to where we are right now. Yeah. Okay? In the 2016 election, right afterwards, I was getting all kinds of uh, really uh, fearful calls, fearful calls from activists who were working with immigrants and refugees, from people working with Young men being racially policed. Black pastors worried about their young people in their youth groups. Hmm. And Muslims who didn't know if they even belonged here anymore. So I'm getting all these calls from all these people worried about people being scapegoated. And the people being scapegoated are the very ones Jesus is here saying we should see and protect and the ones who are being politically targeted by the new administration were these same people. Yep. The least of these. So then what happened was very fascinating. A text began to rise up across the country. This text, Matthew 25, this text that I love so much, I could see it, hear it, being raised up across Mm. the country. A group of activists called, and they were around immigration, and they said, Jim, this is the text that God's giving to us right now. This is our text. Or on racial policing, the same text came out of uh, black pastors working to protect their youth group leaders from the police. Mm. And then Muslims saying, where do I fit? Where do I fit? So a number of us began to have conversations about this text and how the text was rising up after the election. This text was becoming a way of 
thinking about this, of who was being targeted, just as, as you said, or as Rene Girard said, who was being scapegoated for political purpose. Yeah. So the Matthew 25 text became a Matthew 25 movement hmm. that we talked about, prayed about, gathered about, retreated about. And while so many people um, felt fearful and attacked and targeted, the three groups that we began organizing with were immigrants who were being targeted with potential deportation, the end of their families, young people of color being racially policed, and Muslims who didn't know if they belonged anymore. Mm. We began to organize around that, how to, in fact, um, offer protection and sanctuary to young families today before conversation, I got an email how groups have gathered around a family in Southern California and saved them from ice. Wow. Just saved them from ice. The book tells stories about people saving young people, families, pastors, uh, a Pentecostal pastor who's been uh, undocumented for years, decades. Yes, that story so stood out yeah. to me. Pastor Noe. Yes. How did that stand out to you, that story? Oh, my goodness. I was just so struck by the, the. I think in a time when a family could not feel more alone or more rejected, this is a, a story of, a, of, a, of Pastor Noe in uh, Southern California who had come to the U.S. when he was 13 years old undocumented, right? I think he was about 13. Yep. And... Uh, and was one of the the dreamers, and uh, and was threatened with deportation. And he put... actually was an older pastor who created the whole church. Oh, and, he was. Yeah, he's a Pentecostal minister. Wow, been for decades, married to a citizen wife. His kids are citizens, and he went in to check with ICE every year just to say, "Yep, here I am. Here yeah. I am." They're waiting outside for dinner, and he got detained put in an orange jumpsuit and told he was being deported right away back to Guatemala. Mm. And held in detainment for several months. And, mm-hmm. and and what struck me was there's this line about how it was like the Matthew 25 community rallied around him in this whole like national pressure with local persistence. And all of these pastors and 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 different faith leaders coming together to to advocate for and push for his release. And it was just such a beautiful picture of the church uniting and unifying to take direct action amidst unjust policies. And in 2017, uh, yeah, after two two months, 59 days of detention, he suddenly and unexpectedly, unexpectedly, they just let him go. By a movement that called itself Mateo 25. So beautiful. Mm. I love that because as you see these government bodies trying to otherize and weaponize, you know, hate and racism and uh, white supremacy against, you know, lots of these people, you're also seeing advocacy rise up that is kind of stopping the scapegoating process. Yeah. It's like scapegoating doesn't work if folks call out the process as it's happening. So when you call out the demonization, it's very hard for the scapegoating to take place because it's revealed and then it's seen for what it is. That's how Jesus unmasked the powers and principalities through his sacrifice, because you saw the victim was innocent. And you're like, wait. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's you guys. You guys are the ones projecting and doing this stuff. And I feel like that's kind of your, that story is such a beautiful depiction of how the church as a mediator and an intercessor yes. gets to stand in that place of interrupting the powers and the principalities and saying, no, no, you can't do that. You can't scapegoat those people. You can't demonize them. We're not going to let you other them. We're going to expose it with light and love. And we're going to we're going to be a refuge and a sanctuary and nothing like that. Nothing pushes back the forces of darkness and Satan and hell other than when the church stands in that space and holds light to it. Yeah. And Pastor Noe is preaching inside the detention center and 17 people had a reconciliation with Christ while Look he was that. in there. Look at God. It's so cool. Look at God. In this very special season of The Soul of the Nation, the Reverend Jim Wallace is sitting down with Democratic presidential candidates to discuss the role of faith in policy and politics. 
Senator Cory Booker. Often people wield religion as a way of distinguishing themselves, to indulge in that which Jesus warned us about, in judgment of others, not humble servants or unconditional love, but to use religion as a weapon against others. I want to unapologetically talk to who I am. And if I divorce that from public dialogue, then I am not sharing with the country my constituency, the truth of who I am. Secretary Julian Castro. One day I walked into my law firm and I quit my job. Uh, After that, my house went into the foreclosure process. (laughs) I got behind on my student loan payments. and I made that decision because I believed that it was the right thing to do, that I was there to represent the people. So I think you have to make those decisions based on the core values that you have. And there's certain things that you can't compromise on. Mayor Pete Buttigieg. I do think that if, if there is such a thing as a religious right, then there had better be something like a religious left. Uh, although that uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's got to be a mirror image. I think it means that, uh, above all, that people of faith know that they do have a choice. That, that if your religious values guide you, then make sure that's all of your religious values, including the ones about protecting the marginalized and being concerned for the poor and all of the things that are in there. But it does, of course, diminish religion to reduce it to a political value system. Listen to these conversations and more at the Soul of the Nation podcast. You can find the Soul of the Nation at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Thank you. Then you apply that same story to, um, well, two of the Black Lives Matter leaders, D. Ray McKisson mm-hmm. and Brittany Packnett. Yeah. Uh, D. Ray is, was the one who told me the first pastor who showed up to the streets after we were organizing for night after night after night told me I should go home. Wow. That was D. Ray. The first thing a pastor said. Now he and Brittany Packnett have organized Campaign Zero, yeah. which is targeting that very thing. Targeting racialized policing, calling it out, naming it, naming the scapegoating. Yeah. And now a whole campaign is rising up. And and a lot of us are helping put pastors together with these activists. So pastors, mm. the church is standing up, rising up. And now you meet some of these leaders of uh, uh, Black Lives Matter or the Black Youth Project in Chicago, the same thing, showing up at uh, – or. Otis Moss in his church, Otis Moss III in his church, now has Black Youth Project leaders in his study where I got to discuss the sermon after I preached on a Sunday. They're now in the study of the pastor because Otis Moss III has reached out to those street kids. Or Julian DeShazier in Chicago, J-Quest is his rapper name, moved into the South Side and asked Black Lives Matter is there anything he can do to support them? They said, well, we need a place to meet. So they began to meet at his at his church, University of Chicago Church. Mm. And then after a while, uh, he would just sit and listen. After a while, he said, what do you most want? We need a, a trauma center on the south side of Chicago. No trauma center. Whoa. On the south side of Chicago. Given the violence, Yeah. no trauma center, nothing. So he says, well, listen, would it be helpful to get pastors to sign a letter? He said, yeah. So all Julian did was get pastors to sign a letter, which pastors can always do, right? Yeah. And those pastoral letter got the attention of the University of Chicago. Finally, these kids have been working and organizing and fighting. Now some pastors came alongside them alongside them underneath their leadership and said, these young people are saying that we need this. University of Chicago has now put in the first trauma center wow. on the South Side. This is, amazing. this is how discipleship works. This is how the church can disciple nations. Mm-hmm. This is how the church can disciple cities and neighborhoods is by supporting the vulnerable, the least, and then speaking to powers and authorities about how to help, how can mm. we bridge this gap? And that to me feels, that gives me hope in the church as an actual agent of change and good in society rather than oftentimes the people partnering with the dehumanizing and the, the othering or whatever. And so these stories actually, I feel very encouraged just hearing them. 
So the fake table, which you came to one of those gatherings. Yeah, in 2016. The last one here had Julian there, Julian De, Pastor Julian de Chazier, and I introduced him to one of our speakers, David Brooks, New York Times columnist. Oh, yeah. Right? And David I think said, I met him before, yeah. David said, wait a minute, Pastor, you're, you're the one that worked with those with those young organizers, and you brought this to the board of University of Chicago. I'm on the board. I was on the board, and that's why we put the trauma center no way. there oh. in the street, and Julian and David Brooks hugged each other at wow. the faith table because here the church had risen up and stood with and alongside those Black Youth Project, Black Lives Matter organizers. And here's David Brooks saying, David Brooks saying, that's why we did it. Wow. That's mm. why we did it, coming together like that. Mm. Then a whole lot of Muslim organizers or leaders of Muslim organizations came to see us at Sojourners, a whole bunch of them, and they were just terrified of what mm. was happening to them. Muslim bands, their young people, their kids being stopped at airports. They were being picked off the street and interrogated, and they didn't know what to do, and we had a long conversation and finally, one Christian and Jewish leader after another said this. Uh, we're here together with you today. We're going to stand in solidarity with you. And if they go for what they look like they might be going for, registration. Registration of Muslims in this country. We want you to know that we'll be the first in line as pastors and priests and rabbis saying, I'm a Muslim. Hmm. And the feeling in that room of those Muslims feeling that here's their religious um, <laughs> partners yeah. saying, I will stand in front of you, yeah. alongside you, and say, I'm a Muslim too. So this text led to all of that. Wow. Mm. I love what you just said a moment ago, the language you just said, with and alongside. Yeah. Sometimes I just wish we didn't have more language than that as Christians. Like I almost would not even rather be identified as a Christian and just someone that is with and alongside. Mm. Someone who is with and alongside the broken. Someone mm. who is with and alongside the marginalized. And because that's that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. As God with us. Like God stands with us, within us. And if we could just represent that sense of abidingness that to our brothers and sisters, to our Muslim brothers and sisters, to our LGBT brothers and sisters, to yes. our like black and brown brothers and sisters, to women, to every like if we could just demonstrate that. And I don't even need the the rest, honestly, because <laughs> I'm like, give me the Holy Spirit. Give me the, the thing inside of you that wants to stand with and alongside. Yeah. Yeah. Christianity that's not just for us and about us. Yeah. Which is, I think, the the great hypocrisy of the American faith is that we've we've made our religion and our faith about our own inner life and nothing more. Yeah. And in particular, white Christians and white pastors standing with and alongside and underneath black leadership. That is a in great clarification. <laughs> <laughs> in particular, yeah, because a lot of uh, progressive folks want to get involved, and then it's it's a habit. It's a it's a habit of privilege to want control. Mm. You get to be in the in the passenger seat, but you don't get to be in the driver's seat. I can fix mm. this. I can f let me use my influence to fix this. And when you see instead people uh, standing alongside each other. And white pastors looking for leadership from black pastors. It's a whole different movement yeah. and a whole different conversation. Yep. And this text, I think, is bringing people to that place. And the text says it's where we find Jesus. Yeah, That's what it says. It's, it's not just here's the right space to be politically. Uh, it was a chaplain at a Christian college that had me come in and speak. And because he had me and a couple others come in, he lost his job, right? He lost his job because he had me come in to speak at this evangelical Christian college. So he went out to start working under a bridge with homeless kids. 
And now he says, I want to thank you for helping me get fired from that job because I'm closer to Christ now mm. than I've ever been. I found Jesus under the bridge with those homeless kids. And now I used to be chaplain, but now I'm closer to Christ wow. than I've ever been. And I hear that again and again and again from people who just go and begin to be there and show up. Just show up yeah. and start to listen and pay attention and get, as you say, also an interrelationship with people that change their lives. And that's what happens when you're in the place that Jesus says, I'm here, I'm here. Come see me here. Yeah. Come find me here. Yeah. That's what changes our lives as Christians again and again. I'm I'm just still stuck on what you just said a moment ago, though, when you said, what does it look like if white Christians were to stand in solidarity with the black church? Like, I, just, I, I feel like that, I don't just want to make that like a small little point. Imagine what the reflection of Christianity would look to the world if with our racial history, 400 years of slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, mass incarceration, and the white church said, we're going to stand in solidarity alongside with only to support our black brothers and sisters and our black, particularly our black Christian brothers and sisters. Just start there. Mm -hmm. What would that look like? I don't know. I don't, I can't even imagine it. And thank God, honestly, just getting to know you in a more personal way, Jim, I just hearing your heart. Thank you for being a white Christian man yes. who has constantly for decades asked the question, but as well modeled your life in such a way where the authority and the voice of black and brown Christians, not just influenced you, but you, you allowed it to be the lens by which you saw reality. Well, what that looks like that you just asked, it would look like a church that's transforming people. Mm. Just today, as we're sitting here talking, I got this statement. Barbara Williams Skinner, who's a dear friend and uh, um, co-worker and partner, sent me this letter that's been uh, drafted and signed by a whole lot of black women leaders, mm -hmm. black women church leaders, in response to what's happening to the four black and brown congresswomen who are being attacked by the president of the United States every day, all day long. He attacks, mm -hmm. we're sitting here right now, this is going to go on for a while. And black women have risen up, black Christian women have risen up to speak on their behalf for them as black women, and then have just asked a number of us to sign their statement as allies. Hmm. So I just signed the statement this morning as an ally to my black Christian sisters who are standing up and leading in this fight to defend brown and black women members of Congress. So what that looks like is that people aren't alone. And it means this Jesus can change and transform our lives and disrupt our sociology. When our white American affluent sociology trumps our theology, which is this, Matthew 25 is theology. Yeah. It's not just politics. How can our theology trump our sociology. How can our theology as brothers and sisters, where Paul says in Galatians, there is no more male and female, Jew and Greek, slave and free. Those two, those three divisions are race, gender, and class. Mm. The world's divided by race, gender, and class all the time. It's always those three. And one, yep. they're all in relation to each other, but they're always those three there. And in Galatians, it, Paul says, no more Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. Uh, we are one in Christ. Now, that text in Galatians, that was a baptismal text at the baptism of early Christians, which means, now, baptism, of course, is public, right? Yeah, public confession. Public statement, confession, I'm now belonging here. That statement is saying to all those around, we are trying to overcome, transform, be freed from these divisions of race 
and class and gender. That's what our movement is. That's what our movement does. If you don't want to be a part of that, go somewhere else. If you don't want to be a part of a movement that is transforming and overcoming these horrible, hateful, painful, violent divisions, please go somewhere else. Don't come here. Mm. And it's it's wild because it feels almost a little, it feels a little insidious, if I might use this word, because that scripture is often used as a way to, I've seen it used as a way to diminish and squash the voices of women and minorities like, oh, well, you shouldn't be worried about being a woman because, you know, we're not, you, you shouldn't be worried about that. Or, you know, don't be black. Like, you know, I've been told that many times in white evangelical churches, which is kind of the opposite of what you're saying. You're saying we're building a new community where those identities are not the whole of who we are and who we are in Christ is much bigger. And that leads directly, that whole biblical uh, sort of uh, pilgrimage leads to that revelation conclusion where we're all worshiping God together in revelation in our own languages, in our own tongues, in our own tribes, in our ethnicities. We don't become some one amorphous blob yeah. <laughs> denominator, which of course in the church would would be white. Yeah. No, we are who God has made us to be in all our glorious diversity, worshiping God together. Mm. And that's that's the power of what could happen if we did what you were saying. If we stood together on behalf of particularly in defense of those who are, Jesus says, the least of these. That would show that this kind of community can transform the world. So going to this issue of the vulnerable, the least of these, and and a specific issue that touches on race, gender, class like no other, um, I was surprised and appreciated that you raised the issue of abortion in this chapter and went quite deep on it. Um, and I would love for you to share with us, Jim, just some of your thoughts on how this Matthew 25 text and the idea of discipleship informs a, a, a Christ-centered thinking on this issue that has been so divisive in both our churches and our politics. Well, I, I really down deep hope that that this Jesus, this kind of gospel, can bring us together even across some of those terrible dividing lines. Pro-life and pro-choice have been, become fighting words yeah. all over the place. So, yep. so I put that in this chapter because I'm trying to say, Jesus is saying, focus now, focus on those who are most vulnerable. So in this debate about abortion, that's not happening really on either side. Because look at the data. Most women, the majority of women, uh, who, who, who finally want to have, decide to have abortions, are not married. Many are on their own. And they're low income. They don't have support. They don't have health care. They don't have nutrition. They, don't, they have unequal pay. They, they, they are people who are often on their own and vulnerable and if the pro-life people i call them the pro-birth people i'm not sure they're pro-life but the pro-birth people don't see the vulnerable woman who's in that what many have called often a tragic or desperate situation. They're not seeing the vulnerability of women. Even in what's happened, there is so much inequity of power, so much sexism, so much differentiation of power, and the woman who has to bear the burden of this and bear this child is, is, is vulnerable as a woman, and the right just doesn't get that. Mm. But so... But when a couple that wants to have a child gets pregnant, it's almost often within two weeks or three weeks that they're talking about um, this new vulnerable child who is the center of their lives now. 
and and they're talking about the future and and they're changing how they live and eat and behave and uh, speaking Chinese into the, mm-hmm. the womb of the mom and all this there something some some this this life this potential life this 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 life that's becoming uh, the child of God is so vulnerable. So we've got two vulnerable people here. Hmm. Not one, mm-hmm. but two. How do we understand the vulnerability of the woman in that situation and the vulnerability of uh, the life that's becoming? And you can argue about theology and when life becomes life and science actually showing that that these lives are are more viable earlier than we thought. All of that's going on, but we're just take one side or the other. We're not feeling, seeing how we're dealing with two vulnerable lives here. So to me, this text helps with that. Mm. Now, that doesn't answer all the questions. What kind of public policy? Most people in this country um, uh, don't want to criminalize a difficult and desperate choice. But most people would like to see abortion reduced. How do you prevent unwanted pregnancies? How do you support women uh, who are, who, who are uh, pregnant with, with health care, with nutrition, with uh, supporting women who are in difficult situations reduces abortion. All the data shows that. You support women economically, nutritionally, medically. It helps the abortion rate go down. When you, when, when you help, help women with, with, um, with uh, child care and planning and birth con- control, this helps abortion go, go down. So one thing we could agree on is let's agree how to best reduce abortion. I don't yeah. believe that banning abortion reduces abortion. Mm. It puts vulnerable women into even more desperate, life-threatening circumstances. I don't believe banning abortion is the way to reduce abortion. But many things we know do reduce abortion. Why couldn't we have common ground, pro-life and pro-choice, around let's together find ways to support women, particularly vulnerable women, in reducing Abortion. That would be, I think most of the country is probably there. Yes, yeah. But how do we get that into our politics, which are so polarized on both sides? Understandably, uh, unborn lives, women, this polarization, maybe maybe in this Matthew 25 context, Mm. we can see how vulnerable two people are. Mm. I just as a man, I won't speak too much on this because I I've just taken my voice out of this because I'm like I'm not a woman, I don't have to make this choice. And also too, I want to center women's voices in this conversation because I often feel like it is men talking about this a lot. Um, but I do want to say to you, Jim, thank you for articulating a third path. Thank you for asking that question. How can we see that there are two people vulnerable here? I find that to be so lacking in the conversation, um, not just asking about the viability of uh, a fetus in the womb, but also what situation created someone to want to make that choice. And I'm not even wanting to shame anybody for making that choice as much as I don't think we have centered women in the conversation um, in their bodies and also their vulnerabilities and the situation that often gets created around that. So I just want to say thank you for that. Um, and I hope a lot of men can hear that, especially pro-life men, and listen to Jim give you a beautiful challenge um, to see somebody maybe you're not seeing in the polarization. Well, the last sentence of that section says what you just said. I'm the author of this, and I'm a man. So I can't feel and experience this the way women do. So yeah. women's voices have to be lifted up on this question, mm-hmm. be the center of the conversation. Now, Allison, you deal with this issue with women uh, all the time. You you know people who have been in the circumstances. Uh, I mean, how do we lift up women's voices in this conversation around this kind of 
of text like Matthew 25. Does that, what do you think about that? I think to your point, the first thing we do is get out of the polarization. I think Mm -hmm. we've created such a false dichotomy that's also not true to the reality of of what the issue is. When you say pro-life versus pro-choice, first of all, it's it's all life. An egg is life. An unfertilized egg is life. So right there, we've already confused the question. Um, and and to recognize, secondly, that no one wants an abortion. No one wants it as their first choice. Um, it, it, when we can begin there and say, how do we find a point of agreement on all making it rare? I had a friend once who... Uh, was working with both Focus on the Family and Planned Parenthood, finding commonality in both mm. of those organizations wanting to make abortion rare. And I was like, that's the middle way. Mm. That's the pathway. Because if we can meet there and find that ground in which we can have a shared conversation and recognize that that there is a mystery um, of of soul and personhood, and the the complexity of that question, instead of these kind of black and white camps that both sides have put it into, that I think have gotten us into the place that we're in, you know, I think I think that's where we begin. And, and I appreciate you both saying, you know, that women's voices need to be front and center here, because I think women are half of that vulnerable population. And so how do we we both see that you know, so many women who are facing this choice are are poor, are desperate. Many already have children making that decision. And as people of faith, I think embracing them with a sense of of great compassion. I'm so inspired by people of faith who walk with pregnant mothers mm-hmm. who, to foster children um, of parents who can't care for their children, as you and Joy have done, Jim of adopting babies who come from families who can't care for them, who have really stepped in in active ways instead of stood outside picketing and shaming. That looks like Jesus in this issue. There's a lovely phrase called the consistent ethic of life, a consistent ethic of life, meaning that we're for life here, life and dignity. Yeah. Not just on this issue, but on poverty. Yes. The death penalty, on nuclear weapons. Yeah. And those who say they're pro-life but only care about the issue of abortion, I would say that sounds more like just pro-birth. It also sounds like your values got co-opted by a political agenda, mm. if that's your only main concern in this argument. And that's how this issue is used yep. politically. And it also yeah. sounds like you are probably a man who wants to control women's bodies. Mm. That's what women often feel, and there's truth to that, Mm. that in the pro-life movement, there are men who indeed are not fighting for uh, equal rights for women in society or the church. But then there are women and men who who care about uh, equity. There are movements all over the place defending the dignity of all human lives. And so to just focus on one issue and have that issue be used politically, which is happening all the time, that's not a consistent ethic yeah. of human life or a seamless garment, as some somebody once said. So that's what I'm looking for, more of a consistent application of life and dignity for all of us, and especially attending to those people that Jesus talks about. And Mary Glover talks about in her prayer, Lord, we know that you'll be coming through this line today. Mm. So, Lord, help us. Help us to treat you well. Hmm. Mm. And listen, if men remotely felt the government was dictating what they were doing with their sexual organs and how th- what was sacred or not sacred or life or not life, yeah. that would we would be in a totally different place. And yeah. like Jim said, there is something about this conversation that just reeks of misogyny and male dominance, especially mm. with women and what they should and shouldn't be doing. On this question, we see the polarities, sometimes on both sides, uh, the extremes on both sides, making people feel, again, politically homeless. Yeah. Because they, they, they see and feel these issues 
These are moral questions. Yes. These are moral choices. Uh, and it does involve human lives, human life, vulnerable people on all sides. So the measure of our politics and the measure of our lives will be how the most vulnerable are being treated. Mm. The biblical prophets make clear to kings and princes and rulers. They make clear, you're not going to be judged by your military firepower or by your gross national product or by your popular culture being the envy of the world. You're going to be judged whether you're Christian, Jewish, religious or not. If you are rulers and princes, you'll be judged by how the poorest and vulnerable are doing in your midst, under your governance. Mm. That's the test. That's Jesus' final test of discipleship, and it's applied here to the nations. Not just individuals, but to nations. How we treat the poorest is the measure, finally, of our success. The music you're listening to is provided by this podcast's very own William Matthews. Reclaiming Jesus Now is brought to you by Sojourners. Faith in action for social justice. Podcast produced by Paul Woodhull from the District Productive Podcast Network and Chris Latondres. To learn more about Jim's new book, visit us online at book.sojo.net. That's book.sojo.net. And if you like what you heard today, Please help us spark more conversations about the future of faith by telling a friend or leaving a quick review. That makes all the difference. Thanks for listening. God bless you.